0: A married couple in their 40s presents to the emergency department. Each patient is displaying signs of an inferior wall myocardial infarction or heart attack with ST segment elevations in the inferior leads of their EKG. They each have hypotension with systolic blood pressures in the 70s and bradycardia with heart rates in the 30s to 40s. The bradycardia and hypotension immediately resolves after atropine. They're taken to the cath lab to treat their suspected heart attack, but no heart attack can be found. No coronary arteries are blocked. The couple revealed that they had recently purchased a natural, sweet-tasting food that was touted as a sexual performance enhancer. The couple had been ingesting one teaspoon of the substance each day for the last week, but before presenting to the emergency department, they increased their dose to a full tablespoon which led to them both showing false signs of a heart attack and severe life-threatening hypotension and bradycardia. What sweet-tasting toxin could cause this potentially fatal overdose? If you want answers, keep listening. This is The Poison Lab. Hey everybody, you are listening to The Poison Lab, a show about poisoning from the people who treat poisoning. I'm your host, clinical toxicologist and emergency medicine pharmacist, Ryan, and with me as always, my lovely co-host, Toxo.
1: Absolute pleasure to be here today, Ryan. Truly superb.
0: Uh, something's different here.
1: Well, as they say, new year, new me. My new year's resolution was to become more cultured. It's not that difficult to change my voice module.
0: I don't think that's what they mean when they say becoming more cultured. How did you choose British anyways?
1: My research indicates the audience is much more likely to find this show witty and intelligent if one of the hosts has an English
0: accent. I really want to disagree, but your accent is just so charming. I I don't know how I couldn't believe you. Well, well anyways, okay. Uh, Today we have a great show and uh, a pretty interesting case. A married couple with what appeared to be a twin case of myocardial infarctions or heart attacks. But neither of them had any blockage of their coronary vessels. And they both presented with life threatening bradycardia and hypotension. Now, before we explain what the toxin was, let's hear what our listeners think. Toxo, can you grab the emails? Of course, old chap.
1: Activating email reading protocols. Transmissions from the Poison Verse.
0: Our first email comes from listener Allie Caramali. She says, sounds like Spanish fly, also known as cantharidin, which has been mistakenly used as an aphrodisiac, although I thought it was more likely to cause tachycardia, dot, dot, dot. Anyways, saw this post, and will be tuning in for future episodes. Allie. Thanks for listening, Allie, and great guess. Spanish fly definitely is notorious for use as a natural aphrodisiac. And its actual name, cantharidin, comes from the word cantherides, or beetle. And that's because the medicine itself is derived from extracts of a special type of beetle, aptly named the blister beetle, because after you come in contact with it, you get blister beetle dermatosis, vesicles and bullies springing up on the skin wherever it touched. The beetle secretes a natural defense mechanism known as cantharidin, a vesicant that, when it gets absorbed into your cells, releases all of your cleaving enzymes called serine proteases. And these go to work cleaving the attachments that keep your cells held together. So the skin starts to form vesicles and sloughs off. Not exactly something I'd want to put in my mouth. But much like in the olden days, anything that could have potentially poisonous properties must be a medicine. So after noting the potential toxic effects, it was quickly employed as a medicine being used in China more than 2,000 years ago for everything, from ulcers to venomous worms to tuberculosis. Hippocrates even prescribed cantharidin as a treatment for dropsy, and it was FDA approved in the United States up until 1962 for the treatment of warts. You see, dermatologists would paint cantharidin around the skin of a wart, and it would go to work cleaving the skin from the body and taking the wart with it. Now, from thousands of years of use, it was occasionally noted that oral ingestion could lead to priapism, or a prolonged erection, which has led to inappropriate and potentially dangerous use of this toxin as an aphrodisiac. Because, you see, ingestion can lead to many other effects beyond that, such as oliguric renal failure, uh, severe ingestion can cause liver injury, as well as cardiac dysrhythmia. So, just like you stated, I wouldn't necessarily expect a bradycardia mechanistically from ingestion of cantharidin, and these patients were relatively asymptomatic. I think if they ingested enough to cause cardiac symptoms, we'd probably see some serious blistering or vesicles of the gastrointestinal tract, which wasn't reported either. So while it was a great guess that Spanish fly or cantharidin is an aphrodisiac, I don't think it fits with our patient's toxidrome particularly. Our next guest
1: comes from Reddit user Bill. He says lead has a sweet taste, right? I heard the ancient Romans used it as an artificial sweetener in their wine.
0: Right on with the sweet taste of lead, Bill. What you're actually referring to is sapa, a syrup made by boiling down grape juice in leaded vessels, which they specifically used over copper vessels because it provided a more sweet taste. If you want to know more about lead, Go back and listen to episode 2, The Other Problem with Bullets. There's a deep dive into the long and entangled history lead has with human society. And you weren't the only one to guess lead. We had two other guesses for that. Now, while lead has been used as a traditional medicine for many things, like abdominal pain, and it is very sweet, it's not typically known to cause cardiac arrhythmia effects, even with astronomical levels. Typically, you have CNS effects, like neuropathies and coma. So, great guess, but I don't think we're there yet. Our next guess comes from listener Andrea Ebley, a pharmacist in Washington State. They say, hi, I think it's Turkish honey, or mad honey, also known as rhododendron honey. Thanks, Andrea.
1: Honey can be poisonous. I better stop taking it with my tea.
0: Well, not all honeys talk so, unless you're importing your honey from Turkey, like many do, you're probably okay, but Andrea got it right on the money. Today, we're talking about Turkish honey, or mad honey, rhododendron honey, whatever you want to call it. So congrats, Andrea. You're a listener winner this week. Reach out for one of our sweet, sweet Poison Lab stickers that you can apply to any hard, non porous service. <coughs> As for our toxin, Turkish honey, well, it's not really the honey that's the problem, but the compounds that come along with it. We've known that honey can be used medicinally for many years, and honey is even used to treat cough here in the United States. There are thousands of additional chemical compounds found in it. And the compounds that make up your honey depend greatly on the flowers that make up the honey. In this case, Turkish honey, or rhododendron honey, has been used medicinally for thousands of years by the Gurung people of the Nepalese mountains. It's still used today by many people in Nepal and Turkey as a psychotropic food used for its intoxicating effects or as an aphrodisiac. And while nowadays it's more famous for sending middle-aged men to the emergency department after trying to use it to enhance sexual performance, it actually has a very interesting history and was the first ever chemical warfare agent. So before we dive into the mechanisms of toxicity and our clinical case, toxo, Hit the history segment.
1: Poisons in history.
0: You see, the honey we're talking about today is a special honey. One you can only find in certain regions of the world. That's why it gets its name Turkish honey. Now, just because it's only found there doesn't mean you can't get it elsewhere. In fact, I have a jar of it sitting right in front of me. For about 70 bucks, I got enough to send me to the hospital for many days. I hope I don't need to clarify that I only own this because I'm a nerd and like to collect poisons, and not because I'm trying to ingest this honey. But it does go to show, just because you live in the US or some area besides Turkey doesn't mean you won't encounter this. To understand why it's only in some regions, we need to go way, way back to the evolution of some flowers, specifically mountain laurels, azaleas, and rhododendrons, the primary flowers that bees pollinate to create this Turkish honey. These flowers actually grow naturally in many parts of the world, but in the areas surrounding the Black Sea, which would be Nepal and Turkey, they happen to have very high concentrations of something called grayanotoxin. although these grayanotoxins come along with bees as they pollinate the flowers and get incorporated into the honey. Just a few years ago, they were actually called Andromeda toxins, but the name has been changed. I kind of wish they kept it Andromeda toxins. There's about 18 different types of granotoxin that get incorporated into the honey, and each with their own slightly different pharmacologic effect. But overall, they all act as sodium channel openers in the human body. This is the same toxic effect as various other natural toxins, like batrachotoxin, that's found in poison dark frogs, Or the queen of all poisons, aconitum, which is found in monkshood or wolfsbane. So bees in the Black Sea region pollinate these toxic flowers and return home to make a toxic syrup known as mad honey. The natives of the mountain ranges of Nepal, known as the Gorong people, as well as local Turkish and Nepalese residents are well aware of the intoxicating effects of this honey and have been for thousands of years. However, just like nowadays, a few thousand years ago, If you weren't from the region, you probably weren't aware that this mad honey could make you so crazy. It was just normal honey to you. Which is exactly why it became the first agent used for chemical warfare while foreign invaders were in the Black Sea region. You see, in 67 BC, the area south of the Black Sea was known as Asia Minor. And there was about a 20-year-long war being waged over who would control it. The players in this war were the ailing nation of Rome, who was desperately trying to keep its hold in the Black Sea, and the ambitious king of Pontius, an area you might now know as Turkey. This king's name was Mithridates, and he was an absolutely fascinating subject actually known as the Poison King. His father was killed by poison and he became obsessed with finding antidotes, which is actually why the original antidotes are called Mithridatums. And the practice of trying to ingest a small amount of poison to gain immunity to it is called Mithridatism. But all that's for another time. What's really important here is that Mithridates was a huge thorn in the side of Rome. He was considered one of their most formidable enemies. In 88 BC, a large amount of the Black Sea was occupied by Romans, and this Roman occupation was something that the locals weren't exactly thrilled about. Mithridates managed to turn the locals' distaste for Roman occupation into one of the most brutal overnight genocides that's ever been recorded. He convinced every local citizen to rise up and murder any Roman civilian living in the territory there was an estimated 90 to 150,000 deaths, effectively ridding the Roman presence from the area and ensuring that Rome would always try to hunt Mithridates down. This was the start of the Roman Mithridatic Wars, where Mithridates and Romans fought back and forth for control of the area surrounding the Black Sea, called Asia Minor. Now, after 20 years of back and forth, Mithridates was finally being pushed out of Asia Minor by one of Rome's greatest generals, aptly named Pompey the Great. It wasn't looking very good for Mithridates. He was retreating with his ragtag army, running through an area of Turkey called Colchis. But he wasn't about to give up. Mithridates was a master tactician and read every war text there was. One of the texts, written 400 years before by a Greek soldier named Xenophon, provided him the inspiration for how to deal with the Romans chasing him. See, Xenophon described that after the Greek army beat the Persians in the area near the Black Sea, they helped themselves to the spoils of war and feasted on local honey from nearby beehives. Xenophon wrote in 401 B.C. that hours later the troops began vomiting, had diarrhea, became disoriented, and could no longer stand. But by the next day the effects were gone and they could continue back to Greece. What Xenophon didn't realize was his Greek army was feasting on gryanotoxin filled mad honey. Now, Mithridates was a local. He knew all about this honey, and he realized that the invading Romans wouldn't be aware of the intoxicating effect. So his army, as they marched through Colchis, left barrels of honey out in the streets. Now, just imagine being a war-tattered Roman soldier. You're not exactly eating at the Ritz-Carlton every night. If you found a pot of honey while you were marching after an army, that would be like winning the lottery. So the Roman armies gobbled this up. And just like Xenophon's soldiers, they quickly became incapacitated. The poisoning itself wasn't necessarily lethal, but it rendered them ataxic, inebriated, useless soldiers, which became quite a problem when the local tribes that were allied with Mithridates swooped down from the mountains and murdered over a thousand intoxicated Roman soldiers, marking the first time that a chemical agent was used to inflict mass casualties in warfare. If you want to know more about Mithridates, check out this book called The Poison King. It's a great book about his history and general kookiness. So Mad Honey truly has a very fascinating history. And it's still used to this day, though for much less epic reasons. The honey itself is said to taste a little bit more bitter than regular honey. And it's a razor's edge substance. It can go from intoxicating to toxin in just a few teaspoons, as you can see from the case we discussed. Making it even more confusing is that there's significant variability in the potency of the honey. Honey harvested in the spring, when rhododendrons are more common, is much more potent. So, with little ability to control the toxic potency, it's no wonder that many still get sick from ingesting this substance. So, how exactly does it cause toxicity, and what does that look like? Let's take a quick jump into our toxic mechanisms and clinical effects section before we break down our case.
1: Toxic mechanisms.
0: I won't lie. This is really tough to explain, even with an avid audience and numerous visual aids. There's only so much I could talk about electrical currents and sodium channels before you start imagining everything but that. So I'm only going to explain some of the mechanisms. A lot will overlap with what we were discussing in episode 4 regarding action potentials and arrhythmia generation with loperamide. If you want to know more, I'm going to refer you to an amazing blog post written by a brilliant toxicologist named Dr. Stephen Curry. The blog post is on a website called The Talks and the Hound, a great informative website run by a group of toxicologists. The post is very entertaining and talks specifically about plant-based sodium channel openers and their effects on the heart and action potentials as well as sodium channels. I highly recommend you give it a read. If you scroll all the way down to the bottom, you can see a comment from me nerding out about how much I enjoyed the read. I'll put a link to that blog post in the show notes. And there, you'll be able to dive in as deep into the mechanism as you feel comfortable. Now, for those of us who want to indulge, let's get into the basics of sodium channel openers and their effect on the heart. Toxo, can you kick in some lo-fi? Activating groovy protocols. If you remember back to episode four, we talked about heart cells and how they're polarized. This is sort of their resting state. They always have more positive charges outside the cell than inside because of a pump called the sodium potassium ATPase pump, which pumps out three sodium for every two potassium that pumps in. The relatively larger amount of positive charges outside the cell means that it's more negative inside the cell or polarized. And in order to have a depolarization, all that sodium needs to come back into the cell making the charge in the cell neutral or depolarized. And this depolarization is what leads to all the downstream messaging that causes the heart cell to contract and give you a heartbeat. And this depolarization and polarization is the same mechanism that all of your cells use in order to communicate or complete an action. Your pancreas cells depolarize to release insulin. Your nerve cells depolarize to talk to each other, just like your heart cells depolarized to contract. So this is an incredibly important activity to be able to allow sodium to come into the cell. Now, sodium enters the cell via sodium channels that are on the cell membrane, but they don't just open for no reason. They need a signal, and that signal is called the threshold potential. If we take the example of a nerve cell, that cell's resting or baseline state when it's just hanging out, not communicating with other cells, is to be negatively charged or polarized. How negative it is, which we call the resting membrane potential, is the difference between the positive charges outside the cell versus inside. And in a nerve cell, that's about negative 70 millivolts. Now, to get that nerve cell to talk to another nerve, we need to depolarize it and let sodium in. So how do we go about doing that? Some signal comes through, like a neurotransmitter, that tells the cell to become more permeable to something like calcium, a positively charged ion. Then, as more positive charges enter the cell, the resting membrane potential goes from negative 70 to, let's say, negative 55. Negative 55 millivolts is called the threshold potential. And it's the charge within the cell that induces a change in the sodium channels, allowing them all to open up. This flood of sodium into the cell makes the charge actually neutral or even sometimes positive and leads to all the downstream effects that lets the nerve talk to its other nerves. Now in a normal cell, that sodium floods in and the sodium channels quickly go from active to inactive. This prevents any more sodium from entering the cell and it can repolarize or kick sodium back out of the cell and get back to its negative 70 millivolts this is where we get into the toxicity of sodium channel openers sodium channel openers prevent sodium channels from going into the inactive state so they're always open letting sodium flood into the cell and this has two main effects if sodium is always allowed to flood into the cell the resting membrane potential Remember, that thing that's normally set up by having more positive charges outside the cell than inside is going to be messed up. We will have more positive charges inside the cell. And this raises our resting membrane potential, bringing it closer to the threshold potential, meaning the cell might fire off at any time because it already has enough positive charges in it to hit its threshold potential this can cause an early depolarization. If it happens in the heart, it can act as, well, a signal to trigger a heartbeat, but coming from the wrong place, we would call this an ectopic pacemaker, and it can lead to depolarization out of sync with all the other heart cells. If it meets the right set of tissue, this can cause an arrhythmia. So with plant-based sodium channel openers, we could see a variety of arrhythmias from these ectopic beats. Things like ventricular atrial fibrillation or certain ventricular tachycardias. Now, there's actually a whole slew of electrophysiologic effects that having a raised resting membrane potential can have on the cardiac cell. If you don't know what I mean when I say electrophysiologic, I'm going to ask you to just hold on for one moment. I'm going to talk for the next 90 seconds about the effects of a raised resting membrane potential on sodium channels. So if the physiology part of this show isn't your thing, go ahead, take a break, brush your teeth, do some stretches, come back in 60 seconds, but this one's for the true nerds. Now, for the rest of us, remember, these sodium channel openers lock sodium channels in the active state, preventing them from going to inactive and then back to resting. This increases the resting membrane potential by increasing intracellular sodium and downstream other intracellular cations. Now, the amount of sodium channels that are in the inactive state that can go back to resting is dependent on your resting membrane potential. The lower your resting membrane potential, the easier it is for your sodium channels to go back to resting. Since we've increased our resting membrane potential, we actually keep more of our sodium channels in the inactive state. So even though we've locked many of our sodium channels in the active form, we're decreasing the amount of sodium channels that can go to resting and we can actually slow our sodium current down during depolarization leading to wide QRS complexes in the same way that sodium channel blockers do. And one last thing, with the sodium channels allowing sodium to enter the cell throughout the entire phase of the action potential, we can also see early after depolarizations. Remember, if the sodium current raising the intracellular ions, overtakes the current of positive charges leaving the cell, which normally leads to repolarization, we can see an early after depolarization, and that will function similar to an ectopic pacemaker. We covered a lot of those mechanisms in episode four and the mini episodes around it, so check those out if you want more. That's as in-depth as we're going to go into these mechanisms.
1: This has been your in-depth electrophysiologic nerd review. We will now return to our normal content.
0: Okay, so now we know that gryanotoxins, by locking the sodium channel into the active state, can raise our resting membrane potential closer to our threshold potential, leading to early after depolarizations, which can cause arrhythmias, as well as, if you were able to listen to that last piece, leading to delayed sodium currents, which can cause wide complex rhythms. But none of this really explains the bradycardia that we saw in our case. Well, we've been talking about the effects of raising the resting membrane potential on cardiac cells. But the bradycardia actually comes from raising the resting membrane potential of nerve cells, specifically the vagus nerve. No, not that kind of vagus. V-A-G-U-S. The vagus nerve is what supplies the heart with acetylcholine. Acetylcholine, which is the primary neurotransmitter used in our parasympathetic nervous system. Remember, the rest and digest nervous system? The one that lets us chill out and relax. Well, it turns out If you make the vagus nerve spontaneously depolarize, it's gonna sprinkle acetylcholine onto the heart for really no reason. And this is gonna slow our heart rate down and cause bradycardia. Normally, it only does this in response to things like increased blood pressure. Where it's concerned, the system's gonna have too much pressure. So it tries to slow the heart rate down so we're not pumping so much blood into the system. But when you introduce cryonotoxin, you can induce spontaneous depolarizations of the vagus nerve, and it'll slow the heart rate down without any increase in pressure, and then you can get a low blood pressure. Okay, I think that's about as in depth as we're going to go into the physiology. Thanks for listening along. Hopefully, that wasn't too over. Oh, who am I kidding? That was overwhelming. But you did a good job listening along, and hopefully, you enjoyed the music. So. We now know exactly how it imparts its effects, but what do we see in patients actually presenting to the emergency department after taking a double scoop of their mad honey? Fortunately, our colleagues in Turkey, who see this much more often than, say, their U.S. counterparts, have shed some light on this for us. A nice review article has summarized all the cardiac effects that were reported in case series throughout the years up to 2016, and... What they found was that bradycardia was the most commonly reported arrhythmia in patients presenting with mad honey intoxication, being present in up to 91% of patients in some case series. And this, of course, makes sense, given that we know excessive vagal stimulation is frequently encountered with mad honey. Most of the patients had required nothing more than atropine to treat their symptomatic bradycardia. Very few of them required anything like electrical pacing. Hypotension did commonly accompany bradycardia, which makes sense, as if your heart rate is reduced when you're already in a low-pressure system, you're only going to reduce your pressure even more. There were a few rare cases of arrhythmia like atrial fibrillation or the unfortunate cases of asystole. That's when the arrhythmia kind of wins the war. And we do understand that arrhythmias are possible with mad honey due to its effect on action potentials and causing early after depolarizations. Fortunately, the vast majority of patients rarely need anything more than supportive care and potential atropine in order to reverse their bradycardia. Interestingly, there are numerous case reports of mad honey leading to ST segment elevation with normal coronary angiography. A few proposed mechanisms, but essentially prolonged vagus tone, may lead to decreased blood flow to the circumflex in right coronary artery. These cases generally were accompanied with only minor increases in troponin, and they all had bradycardia and hypotension. It's possible that if the bradycardia and hypotension were reversed with atropine first, the ST segment changes may disappear. While bradycardia and hypotension are more hallmark signs of mad honey poisoning, it is a sodium channel opener, and it is possible that you'll see neurologic effects. And while we normally jump to seizures as the most severe manifestation of neurologic toxicity, these are exceedingly rare in the literature. There are very few reports of severe neurologic effects from mad honey. Patients may report things like perioral numbness or Even transient blindness has been reported, but severe decreased mentation or the need for things like mechanical ventilation due to decreased respirations are almost absent in the literature. So how exactly do we manage it? Well, we've talked about our treatment principles before. The first is decontamination. Activated charcoal to bind the toxin in their gut and prevent them from absorbing it does play a role if they show up early enough while there's still some toxin in their gut. Generally, we say within one to two hours. But in the case that we discussed, where we don't know they ingested it until many days later, it's not going to be much help. As for supportive cares, this is just your standard ACLS, airway breathing circulation. Like we said, most people don't need an airway because you don't get that serious of neurologic effects that make them stop breathing. As for circulation... Patients who are bradycardic tend to be supremely responsive to atropine. But for those who still need a little bit of help with their blood pressure after you correct their bradycardia, you can consider vasopressors and electrical pacing. And when we think about our last two treatment principles, reversing toxicity and enhancing elimination, there really is no role for either. There's no real grianotoxin antidote beyond maybe atropine for the excessive acetylcholine that's released. And there's no data to support enhancing elimination with any form of dialysis or plasmapheresis. And the toxicity isn't usually that severe that you would jump to an invasive therapy like dialysis to try to get rid of it. Most people just need a tincture of time to clear the toxin from their body. In truth, supporting these patients through intoxication isn't that difficult. What might be the hardest part is actually identifying that it was a mad honey ingestion. A patient presenting bradycardic and hypotensive is unlikely to ding mad honey in your brain, and really it shouldn't, which is why a good history of ingestion is so important. It might help us quickly determine what the toxic etiology may be and allow us to rapidly institute treatment that can prevent any further invasive therapies, like cardiac catheterization. Unfortunately, in the U.S., granitoxin tests aren't routinely available. Some places can check in the urine or the blood, but it's unlikely to come back in time to actually influence care. Sometimes you can submit samples of honey to your health department and they might be able to do lab assays to check for granitoxin, or some cases are confirmed by assaying the pollen that's found in the honey but rarely are any of these available in any sort of time frame that can confirm the diagnosis. So it really comes down to taking a good history of ingestion. All right, that about sums up the history, clinical effects, toxic mechanism, and treatments for mad honey intoxication. So let's round it out with our case. A 50-year-old male and 42-year-old female husband and wife couple presented to the emergency department three hours after increasing their dose of mad honey consumption for from one teaspoon daily to a tablespoon daily. On arrival to the emergency department, both had significant bradycardia, which we now know was from excessive positively charged ions entering the cell from sodium channels being locked in the active state, leading to excessive vagus nerve depolarization due to being so close to its threshold potential and subsequent bradycardia from acetylcholine reaching the AV node. This low heart rate, also caused hypotension, and they both had maximal blood pressures of around 70 millimeters of mercury. Even more concerning was the fact that they were both showing ST segment elevation in the inferior leads of their ECG, and they're not the first case to do so. There have been many cases of acute coronary syndrome reportedly caused from mad honey intoxication. It's thought to be that excessive vagal stimulation Accompanied with hypotension leads to a transient acute coronary syndrome with no actual endothelial occlusion leading to the ischemia. Both patients received one milligram of atropine and had immediate resolution of their bradycardia and hypotension with subsequent resolution of their ST segment elevation. At the time, the team was not aware of the ingestion of mad honey, so they were both brought to the cardiac catheterization lab and both were found to have normal coronary angiography. Given that there was nothing to intervene on, they were simply sent to the cardiac ICU for monitoring. At this point, they were completely hemodynamically and clinically stable. And that's when they spilled the news about their mad honey ingestion, informing the team that they had been taking honey as a natural sexual performance enhancement for the last week. They had each endorsed slight dizziness and headaches throughout the week, consistent with the mild neurologic signs that we typically see with mad honey exposure. But they brushed them off and continued to consume it and even increased their dose, leading to a bradycardia and hypotension. The medical team was able to obtain a sample of the mad honey and confirm that it was cryonotoxin-containing via a pollen analysis. The patients were treated, evaluated, and released without any comorbid conditions and had a great recovery, as is very common for people who get intoxication from mad honey. They responded incredibly well to basic supportive cares of just atropine and unfortunately got an unnecessary cardiac catheterization, but added to the growing literature of patients presenting with transient acute coronary syndrome after ingestion of granitoxin-containing honey.
1: Wow, not such a sweet ending for those two
0: lovebirds. Let's do a quick summary of what we learned today. Mad honey, or Turkish honey, or rhododendron honey, is a special type of honey found in the Black Sea region where special flowers, particularly rhododendrons, contain large amounts of sodium channel opening toxins known as gryanotoxins. When bees pollinate these flowers and create honey from them, the gryanotoxins come with them. It has a long and storied history in that region and was even the first chemical warfare agent utilized by Mithridates against the Roman armies. Nowadays, it's generally used for its mild intoxicating effects or for people seeking its quote-unquote sexual performance enhancing effects. It increases sodium permeability of cells, making them more positive and more likely to randomly depolarize. This can cause arrhythmias, and it increases excessive vagus nerve stimulation on the heart. Common presentations include bradycardia and hypotension, sometimes accompanied with acute coronary syndrome-like changes on the EKG. Mild neurologic symptoms may also be present, like headache, dizziness, or perioral numbness. Treatment is typically supportive cares. And fortunately, the bradycardia in hypertension is very responsive to atropine. It's a sticky substance that can have incredibly high potencies depending on the season that it's harvested. So people exposing themselves to this medical food are walking a tightrope regarding intoxication versus toxicity. Well, that'll be it for this episode. Short and sweet. Get it? If you like what you've been hearing, don't forget to subscribe to this show. You can find our RSS feed at thepoisonlab.com, as well as a lot of other things like medical games and resources. You can follow us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, I think any type of podcast listening platform. And don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at Lab Poison and myself at EMPoisonFarmD. We also have an Instagram at talks underscore talk and a Facebook, The Poison Lab. And if you have any questions, ideas about what episodes you want to hear, or just want to reach out to the show, email us at talkstalk1 at gmail.com. Keep your ears peeled. We'll be releasing the intro to our next episode soon. And if you think you know what's going on, send us an email so you can participate in our next episode. Thanks for listening today. Hope we can see you next time.
1: The information on this show is for educational purposes only and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment recommendations. Contact your doctor for health questions or call your local poison centre at 1-800-222-1222. The opinions expressed on this show do not represent those of our employees. This show is fully written and shoddily produced by Ryan Feldman. Don't forget to give it a share with your nerdy friends. See you next time. Ta for now.